So the last thing that a police officer trying to chase down a suspect in a high-speed chase needs to see is a warning that their patrol car is running low on gas or on gas. But that's exactly what happened in one night in Fremont, California. There was a police officer who was pursuing a suspect while driving the department's Tesla Model S. We know this, the battery was low. The pursuit of a felony vehicle started in Fremont and it reached speeds in excess of 120 miles an hour on the highway. And the officer driving the Tesla radioed into dispatch that he might be given us to take the case. Officer Hartman said, I'm down to six miles of battery on the Tesla, so I'm going to leave it here in a sec. The vehicle being chased out of the way, but eventually crashed into some bushes and the driver fled the scene and was not found. But you'd be glad to know that Officer Hartman then took on the charger and said, I'm going to use his patrol car. A police department spokesperson had this to say, We have no written policy in our charging, but the general guideline is that it should be at least half full at the beginning of the shift. Apparently, the test has not been recharged. Just as a police officer shouldn't run out of fuel during a chase, the church that is in pursuit of the lost shouldn't run out of the power either. And yet, that doesn't seem to be the reality. Rather, the church seems to be, in far too many cases, running on fumes, running on empty. It's hard to know just how desperate the condition of the church in the United States is, but if estimates are correct, well over 4,500 churches close their doors each and every year in the United States. Church attendance has plummeted, and secularism is on the rise in the culture around us. While Christianity is still the majority religion of Americans, the number of those whose hearts have been arrested by the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ is on the decline. While the church burned by the power of the Holy Spirit, while it has experienced great revivals throughout its history, the state of the church today, at least in the culture around us, might be characterized as critical, as powerless, and you might even say, in some cases, as weakness. But that weakness doesn't start with the institutional church, does it? It starts with you, and it starts with me, with us, the ones within whom the Apostle Paul said the Holy Spirit of God resides. It starts in us, the ones whose bodies are the very temples of the Holy Spirit, the ones in whom the same Spirit who moved over the waters at creation takes up residence, the ones in whom the same Spirit who breathed life into dust and created man from where there was no man. That spirit resides. The one who the same spirit who moved over a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel and gave life. That spirit makes his home in us. That's the spirit that we're told that we have. And yet we find ourselves running out of power constantly with no energy and seemingly out of the ability to get after the work that God has called us to do. How is that possible? When I was in elementary school, in the early 80s, there was a cartoon on television called Feed Man. You have that, you have that picture there? Maybe not, right? You open up to remember the name? Okay, so wow, you good. So the series took place on Eternia, a plan of magic, myth, and fantasy. Its lead character, here we are, was Prince Adam. 
whatever first Adam called the sword of power, and aloft and proclaimed by the power of grace Saul, I have the power. Right? He was endowed with fabulous secret powers, and he was transformed into the man, the most powerful man in the universe. Now, I gotta admit, my parents would not let me watch him. I was brought up in a very conservative home. My parents said, absolutely not. He is not the most powerful man in the universe. Jesus is. But I'm going to confess to you something this morning, something that I've never told anyone else. On occasion, at a friend's house, I would see the next day. And the Prince Adam, holding that sword above his head and declaring, I have the power, still sticks with me today, some 40 years later. Friends, this morning I would suggest to you that while you may feel powerless, in fact, you have power for my time. That power is inside of you. And you may not be aware of it, but if you are a believer in Christ who has repented of your sin and confessed Christ as your Lord, you have supernatural power at your disposal. And as we continue in our series this morning through the book of Acts, we're going to look at that power on display in chapter 2. What is known as the birth of the church. And I'm going to suggest to you that God's people, indwelled with God's Spirit, are empowered for God's work. <laughs> Let me say that again. God's people, indwelled with God's Spirit, are empowered for God's work. Turn with me in your Bibles, if we're in Bible apps, if that's the way you read it, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to address these verses 1 through 41, but I'm only going to read verses 1 through 13 for you. And I'm going to pray again before we jump into this text. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these foreseeing Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear that telling in our own tongues. The mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But other than said, They are filled with a new mind. God has accomplished your holy work this morning. I plead with you that you give me a fresh offering with the Holy Spirit. I don't want this to be a good speech. I don't want this to be a time where, where some words are strung together cleverly and, and people are, have a new understanding intellectually of what happened on the day of Pentecost. I want it to be said in our time this morning that the Holy Spirit will refresh and renew in this place. 
I want it to be said of, of me that this was nothing he could have done today. That there was no way that he Mary could have done what was accomplished. Our eyes begin. So I pray, God, even as I have put these words on paper, that your Holy Spirit will pour out the precious Allow me to set some context for you before we open this incredible account together. Turn with me if you have some copies of John chapter 14. Just want to walk you through a couple of passages as we move our way toward Acts chapter 2. In John chapter 15, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. His time here on this earth is about to come to an end, and his disciples are understandably troubled. Uh, put yourself in their shoes, if you will, for a moment. They've been with him for three years. They're soaking up his teaching. And now Jesus says, my time on this earth has ended. I've got to go. And once worse, he tells them, even though they don't get it, he must be handed over to authorities, and he must be killed. They're freaking out, to put it in contemporary vernacular, right? And Jesus says to them in the opening of verse chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. He goes on to tell them in these verses that he'll prepare a place for them. When he goes and prepares a place for them, he will come again, and he will take them to be where he is. Now jump down to verse 12. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will be do, because I am going to the Father. In other words, Jesus says, I need to go to the Father for you and those who come after you to accomplish all that God desires to do. Let me say that again. Jesus says, I need to go to the Father in order for you and those who come after you, us. To accomplish what God wants to do through you. It's for your best interest, Jesus says to the disciples, but I do. A couple of months ago, Jerry preached on this passage and he challenged us to remember that it's actually better to have the Spirit than it is to have Jesus in person. And I've got to say, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around, right? I would rather have Jesus teaching here this morning than Jesus says, No, that's not the plan, it's not the Father's plan. I've got something better in mind. And he tells his disciples, I've got to go. In order that what God desires will be accomplished. He continues in verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus says, I can't stay forever, but the Father has a better plan than my stay. He's going to send you another helper, the Spirit of truth, and he will be with you forever. And get this, while the world can't see him, Jesus says, or know him, he says in verse 17, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be. In you. Don't miss that. He dwells with you. This another helper that Jesus, the Father says, the Father's going to send, dwells with you and will be in you. That's a prediction of what is to come. It's a prediction of what we know happens in Acts chapter 2. Now, fast forward, Jesus is crucified just as he predicted. He defeats the grave and death, and he comes back to life. And for 40 days, in his resurrected state, he stays with them and he teaches his disciples. I think some of us come back to that and have something to say, right? 
Like, I can imagine the disciples are, are hanging on every word. Forty days. This resurrected Jesus who had crucified, died, buried, walked around. He ate with them. He taught them from the scriptures. They had a long, intense, in-person Bible study with the author of the Bible, with the word of God in flesh. Now think to Acts chapter 1, we looked at this passage last week. Verse 3 says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after suffering by many fruits, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And at the end of those 40 days, he gave them the fish. It's in verse 8. You receive power, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all to the end of Samaria and the ends of the earth. But you're not going to go for that. You see, he equipped them with the gospel. But then he says to them, you're not ready to take it to the ends of the earth yet. Hold fast. Stand by to stand by, as we say in the military. It's not the time for you to go. And then Jesus is taken from them in heaven. And here's the thing. The disciples are equipped, but they're not in time. There's a big difference between the two. You can be equipped with education, but not have the ability to share that knowledge you have. You can be equipped with skill, but not have the strength to put that skill into action. When it comes to the task of making disciples of all nations, you can know the word of God, but you cannot have the power to carry out the witness of God. There's a big difference between being equipped and being empowered. And that's where we find the disciples in Acts chapter 1. I love verses 10 to 11 of chapter 1. Jesus has been lifted from this earth. Just like blasted off, right? Into the clouds. So they can no longer see him. And what do they do? They keep staring up into heaven. I'm going to wonder if they were thinking, what just happened? He said he was going to call them, but they got what? I doubt that they would imagine. Maybe they might have just walked away and wouldn't see him again. I don't know what they thought, but they're standing there, right? And, and they're, they're staring up into heaven. And verse 10 says, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, probably a polite way of saying the mouths were still having a lot open and disbelief of what they had just seen. Luke says, we have two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you still looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the disciples go. They go to Jerusalem just as Jesus had told them to do. They go to the other room, and that's where we find them in Acts chapter 2. Equipped, not empowered, and waiting. Commissioned, but not yet released. And they're waiting to see what God plans to do next. Let me unpack some of the fundamentals of this passage that we read before we go to a place of application for us as a church this morning. First, let me say a few words about the occasion. Chapter 2, verse 1 says it was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost in the Greek literally means 50th. It was the 50th day after Passover. Passover, of course, commemorated God's salvation of the Jews from Egypt. And God planned for Jesus to die on Passover in order to become the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the entire world. And so on this 50th day after the celebration of that salvation, the Jews celebrated two things, a harvest festival as well as a commemoration of the giving of the Torah, the law of God in Mount Sinai. 
when you have time, we don't have time to unpack at this point, but I encourage you to go back to read Exodus chapter 19, where we see the context of the giving of the law. Because there's similarities that are striking between this day of Pentecost and the time when the law was given. Both involved wind and fire and a covenant. So it's on this great festive occasion when Jews from around the world, devout Jews, would travel. They would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to worship. They would come by the tens, some say even the hundreds of thousands to Jerusalem. And the city would swell with population as they worship. This is an occasion rich in significance. They went out to a place. Luke tells us they were all together in one place. We don't know for sure where it took place. Luke doesn't really explain that. He's not too concerned with that. Only that they were together somewhere. An upper room is mentioned in chapter 1, and a house in chapter 2. Evidently, at some point, this event that begins in this house must have moved to the temple precincts, which was the only place that was big enough for what happened to take place. Well, who were the participants? What do we know? Acts 1, 13 to 16 tells us they are the disciples, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, and apparently, in total, there were some 120 people gathered together. 120 people waiting in anticipation for the gift that was promised, waiting for the Spirit that is to empower them to take this message to the ends of the earth, waiting for an empowerment to be witnesses, waiting for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was sent was so important that he had to leave the earth in order for it to happen. And waiting to see how the full it was that the Spirit was supposed to live inside of that. I'm sure they had so many questions as they waited. And so what did they do as they waited? They prayed. Prayed. That was their posture. For 10 days, they prayed. That's the amount of time that passed, by the way, between Jesus' departure and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Pillar Church and I ask you this morning, do we want an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our city and our church so badly that we would be willing to pray for 10 days? Church, let me reemphasize what Jeremy said last week. If we want to see the Holy Spirit move in powerful ways in our church and in our community, we need to become a people of prayer. Not just individually, that's important, but we need to do it corporately as well. Those second Sundays of prayer, next Sunday evening, they need to become a priority for us. We need to gather and get on our faces before the Lord and plead for a fresh and powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need to do it together. We need to do it individually. And here's the reason I don't want to mess this over as well. Because I'm convinced that much of the ministry of the work, the preaching of the church today, is not dependent upon the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. I think that far too much of what we do today can be done in our own strength. And that many, if not most church activities today, don't rely on the supernatural outpouring of the I came across this quote that was, was alarming by even these folks. This is what he had to say. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit, he continued, had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everybody would go the difference. Pillar, is our work dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit, or are we going at it in our own strength? 
I don't want to be a pastor and a church where we can survive without the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to be a part of a work so mighty that if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from us, we would have to close up shop and go home. I want to implore you to join us as your pastors to pray for the Bible and pray that the gospel would put the gold to the lost and the dying world around us. Come back to the text with me. We've seen the occasion, we've seen the place, we've seen the participants, we've seen the posture. Now let's look at what actually took place. Verse 2 tells us that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the, the entire house where they were sitting. And a divided tongue, which adds a player, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Think about those couple sentences for a moment to understand them. We need to think about wind and fire, two of the symbols that are here. First of all, think about wind. When my family was stationed in Guam several years ago, we came to really respect the power of wind. Wind can be a destructive thing. We saw firsthand the typhoons, or near typhoons, that impacted the region. In fact, just recently, in the last couple months, a typhoon struck that island, taking power out, some for over 30 days, something like that. It is powerful. In the major ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek, the same words used for wind were also used for spirit or breath. The Hebrew word was ruach, which you can't say without a strong breath that. Ruach. The Greek word is Duma, which also sounds like birth. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The breath, the divine life-giving wind of God is blowing across the waters at the beginning. In Genesis 2, God breathed some of his divine life into Adam. And in John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born of water and the Spirit. That to be born again, God must breathe new life into him. You get the sense as you open this passage that this image of wind is really important in Acts 2. Because we're told that the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. There was sound but no wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The sense is there's a, something new that's being created there. That God, just as he brings life into Adam, is pouring out new life into these people, into the church, inaugurating a new era which will bring life to the lightness. And then there's fire. Fire. After the wind is the image of fire, as if the sound of a violent hurricane wasn't frightening enough, then there are what appears to be tongues of fire. Tongues of fire. Tongues by which we speak made of flames. Imagine yourself sitting in that room and a tongue of fire descending upon you. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that fire is often a symbol of God's presence. You remember God led the people through through the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night. In fact, in Exodus, when the law is given in Mount Sinai, the presence of God is symbolized by fire and thunder. Fire consumes the mountain. It was a holy fire. And just as fire brings light, so too would this fire bring spiritual illumination, allowing Peter to preach a persuasive sermon. 
Just as fire breaks more, so too with this fire, the Holy Spirit knowing the hearts of the people, bringing conviction of their sins. And now this breath of God entering this place would fill these people, and the tongues of fire would enable them to speak out about what God had done for them. Which is exactly what happened. Verse 4 tells us they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The point of this was not some esoteric and mystical experience for the believer. Hear me. It wasn't an esoteric and mystical experience for the believer, but rather the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the known languages of those who were staying in Jerusalem. Luke goes on in verses 5 to 11 to tell us the visitors to Jerusalem heard the mighty works of God being declared in their own languages. That these Galileans who didn't speak any of these foreign languages suddenly began speaking in the native tongues of the visitors. And the people that were listening were amazed and they're perplexed and they say to one another, What does this mean? I wonder exactly what they said. Have you ever considered that? And I also wonder if they have the hundred We know about a few of them, but, but this week I'd be careful one I wonder if Matthew testified about God the transformed into a Greek accident to a generous follower. I wonder if Lazarus was there and told about Jesus and called him out of the tomb. I wonder if the man who had been demon possessed was naked and out by chains and living in the tombs of the Europeans was there and told about Jesus and cast the demon out of him. I wonder if the little boy who had shared his lunch with Jesus was there and perhaps told up the children about how he used his black robes Or if the blind man from Bethsaida was there and shared how he had given his sight. Perhaps the woman who was caught in adultery was there and she witnessed to the forgiveness and grace Jesus had shown her. Or Zacchaeus was there and told how Jesus had come to his house to sleep. And say, here, he walks. Maybe Simon and Cyrene is there. They pull him out, he didn't have his foot in the chariot cross. The Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. Whoever those 120 were, and whatever the testimonies were, would be sure to be The awesomeness of the moment was walked out here, by the way. Peter, the one who had no sooner gotten out of the boat to walk to Jesus on the water, and took his eyes off Jesus and began to sing. Peter, the same one who denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, only seven weeks before, the same Peter must have found a place to stand. Maybe it was a high place, maybe he climbed up on the roof, I don't know, but somewhere he went and he began to preach a sermon, a sermon we're told in this chapter, saw 3,000 souls now, we don't have time to look at the entire sermon, but let me, let me just point out a couple of highlights. Peter points to Joel chapter 2 and says that when God said that in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all that, he was talking about this event. This, Peter says, is that. And he points to the psalm saying that Jesus would be crucified as the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, for God would not abandon his soul to Hades or let his holy one see corruption. That sermon is so powerful. That the crowd responds, What shall we do? To which we replies, Repent, baptize every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, precious, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
repent and baptize. And what you've seen happen here, can, when we were filled with the Holy Spirit, it will happen to you too. And we did. Some 3,000 people did. My friends, I was reminded this week of Jesus in Luke 15 and 10 when he said, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And if one sinner repenting is a reason for celebration in heaven, can you begin to imagine what the joy in the throne room of God was in those moments? And I wonder, I just wonder, if tears would straight down Jesus' face, if it was possible, as he thought back to the conversation he had with the disciples in John chapter 14. And I wonder if he remembered the looks of fear and anxiety on their faces as he told them that he had to be. And I wonder if joy was overflowing in his heart as he saw his disciples now witnessed him. He promised to take us. A celebration of the throne room room that day was connected with the heavens. And I bet it was so loud that it would have been deafening to say, Jesus, the Jesus in hell. Oh, the sweet Sweet victory of the Son of God carried out the power of the Holy Spirit that In that moment, the disciples learned through experience that God's people, involved with God's Spirit, are empowered for God's work. But that must have been stopped there in that moment, did it? They learned it again in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, as the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They learned it again in Acts 3 as Peter and John go to the temple to pray. And Peter takes the hand of a lame man and releases him to his feet. They learned that God's people, involved by God's Spirit, are empowered for God's work. They learned that lesson again in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, as the authorities released them from jail, even after they spoke boldly about the gospel. They learned it again in Acts 5, verse 12, as many signs and wonders were done among the people while their apostles indeed. God's people indwelled with God's Spirit are empowered for God's work. They learned it in Acts 5 17 and, and following that the apostles were once again arrested in jail, only to be broken out of jail by the angel. And they learned it in Acts 6 verse 7 that where God continued to increase, and the number of disciples was not just added to, but multiplied greatly. Time and again, the early church learned that God's people, people with God's spirit, are empowered to do God's work. They knew that all the parties, all loss, and all uncertainty surrounding the death of the Lord had been for them. It was for their good, and for the glory of God. And they knew that God's spirit was real, was powerful in that. Let me bring us to a point of application as we finish up. If you're anything like me, you're saying, man, I wish I could experience that same power. Because my experience is not that, you say. Maybe you think that God doesn't work in the same way today as he did then. That God was more calmly and quietly. I'm here to tell you that God is never changing. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that what was true on the day of Pentecost is no less true today that God's people involved with God's spirit are empowered to do God's work. Let me give you four takeaways this morning. First, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Listen to Paul. First in Romans 8, verse 9, he says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ 
does not belong here. And First Corinthians six nineteen, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? If you have repented of your sin, if you have confessed and denounced that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you have there aren't some of us that have Jesus and others of us that have Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's packaged together. As I studied this week, it occurred to me that I think the church has done a bit of a disservice by emphasizing the language of Jesus coming into our hearts and not talking about the Holy Spirit in our presence. Well, it's not wrong to say that Jesus comes into our hearts. The Bible never actually gives that formula, but it does say the Holy Spirit does, comes into us. And makes his presence among us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that reality for just a moment. The Spirit of God lives inside of you as a believer. The same Spirit that breathed life into Adam, the same Spirit that hovered over the waters at creation, the same Spirit lives in us. How do you really take the life? I don't stop you in your purpose. I was in the car as we were driving, reflecting, and praying as I kicked you in the mood. The Spirit of God lives in us. He lives in me. He lives in you. Your voice. Here's the second point of application. We need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit for Christ-exalting ministry. See, while we received the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion, the book of Acts will show us over and again that God calls us, his church, to do extraordinary acts only possible by a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen just once, but happens throughout life in unpredictable and various ways. Here's what John Piper said, the kind of empowering that we receive in the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience that we need again and again and again. Like Piper, I think it's difficult for us to ask for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit, for a fresh filling, a fresh anointing, a fresh authority in order to do counsel. Here's the third point of application. The Holy Spirit uses Christians to make a big deal. Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And if you're not testifying to the wonders of God's salvation, you're either disobeying the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit and you aren't a Christian. Because people in whom the Holy Spirit resides talk about, they proclaim, they make a big deal of Jesus. It's what the Holy Spirit does. I ask you, do you make a big deal of Jesus? In the last day of the prophet was about Throughout his spirit, causing people to prophesy. That word means, by the way, not just to predict, but also to proclaim. It means God's people talk about the things of God. We saw that in a powerful way at Pentecost, and I see it as we continue moving through this book. That church is made up of men and women through whom the Holy Spirit does the mighty things of God. Ladies and gentlemen, only proclaiming the wondrous words of God is not just the job of the church, it's not just the job of the traveling evangelist. Boldly proclaiming the wondrous works of God is the mission of every person within whom the Holy Spirit resides. We are to consistently, frequently making a big deal of Jesus Christ. 
I was so excited to see one of our come forward. This morning, you hit a ping pong in this box. You don't know what that is. One of our values is bold evangelism. And we challenge you to have gospel conversations. Make a big deal of Jesus and the world around you. And every time you have one of those conversations, we want you to bring a ping pong. This morning, one of our had a child with him and said, Who do I do this? She dropped the ping pong in my pocket. Boldly proclaiming the wonders of God is my job. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Let me give you one last point of application. It's an imperative before we close. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Those are Paul's exact words in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The word quench, I find it interesting in Greek, literally means to extinguish. It means to slaughter, to suppress, to douse, to put out, to snuff out. This is talking about the pain. I was reminded of that old song. This is one of those that This is the life one. I am the bush of known. All that says, don't snuff out the spirit of God that's standing up the church. It wants to die. Now, let me be clear we are not in control of the Holy Spirit. He is sovereign, He is all powerful. He can override our resistance at any time. Yet, for reasons only God knows, He often allows us to resist the Holy Spirit. And there are several ways we can do that, but I think the obvious way we can do so is by not making a big deal of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit seeks to do in and through us, is to glorify Jesus. We choose not to share the gospel with others. We're stunning. Not with glorious deeds and wonders. In October of 2006, I was a pastor of the church in our state of New York, and my family. I lived in a parsonage, that's a home, home by the church, if you don't know that term. And we lived right next to the Lordsville Church. One evening, I was out in the park in front of the house. I was visiting with a member of the church, and, and I heard my voice scream. I wasn't sure what was wrong, so I told my friend I'd never go. And I turned around, and as I started back towards the house, the air conditioner in our upstairs bedroom window blew out and called fire. The fire that started upstairs quite quickly to our home. My wife and my kids at the time were in the house, but they got out safely. And anyway, the fire department was actually just the other side of the church. So it was just a matter of feet away. It only took minutes for them to get there. And while it didn't take long to extinguish the flames, the smoke and water and the damage were enough to effectively destroy the entire inside of our home. They lost nearly everything. In the aftermath, the church was forced to totally gut that home. What resulted was an entirely new floor and almost nothing remained from the old interior. The thing about fire is its power. It changes things. It burns everything in its path. Ladies and gentlemen, maybe this morning we have a few stories. Maybe we need a rebuilding. Maybe we need change with only the Holy Spirit and bring. Maybe you realize this morning, even as I preached it, the Holy Spirit doesn't fit in you. You've never surrendered your life by repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus Christ. Maybe, just maybe, you've been coming to church for years, maybe even decades, and you realize that today it's all been intellectual, but you've never surrendered your life and asked the Holy Spirit to take up residence inside of you. And if that's you this morning, can I implore you to invite you to yourself? 
creator of the universe will breathe new life into you. And he'll go about the work of burning away all the old sinful behaviors to make you holy. Special mind, but maybe like Jesus more. We know the Holy Spirit is there, and we say, "I need to stretch out the Holy Spirit. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I want Him to be made known through me, friends. I don't want to go through the motions. I'm a busy guy. I want to play church. I've got plenty of arms in the fire." with a family and a job and lots of things. I don't want to be a pastor at a church that just goes through the motions. I want Builder San Antonio to be a place where people look and say, wow, what they're doing is not possible for me to I want history to show that what happened here made no sense. That the only way to explain the things that occurred by divine marriage. Friends, that's not even possible. That's why he left this earth and sent us the Holy Spirit. Because God's people and the world with God's Spirit are empowered to do the gospel. So don't touch this. Allow me to sanctify you. Then allow him to empower you and use you to make the good of Jesus Christ. We pray for you. God, we humbly come before you this morning, asking for a fresh out of the world of the Holy Spirit. Father, I have been guilty far too often in my life of going about this other topic, of being preaching. Oh, God. While I may be able to humanly speak straight on, sequence of words together and people walk away and say, wow, that was a good sermon for you. Without the Holy Spirit, it's nothing more than a good sermon. God, I don't want to be part of a church in the world of questions. And I know it's people We want to be part of it. We do something great in the world around us. We see the need. We see the loss, we see the brokenness, we see the sin, we see the hurt in the heart. And we know that you are greater, that anyone that is in us is greater than you is in the world. And so this morning, God, we want to surrender to you with open hands and open hearts. And let's say, the Holy Spirit, want you to empower us. We want that you desire. Send the Holy Spirit fresh in us. Bless us as a church. Bless us individually. Bless us corporately with our families. God, you choose to do something that is so much greater than anything we could ever have dreamt or imagined. Because your people is happening. Your people and love of your spirit are now. Thank <laughs> you.